Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, I speak with Angus Ridgway, CEO of Potential Life, 20-year McKinsey veteran and former leader of McKinsey's EMEA strategy practice. Potential Life was born out of Angus's passion for understanding what separates the best from the rest. Having watched this play out day in, day out at McKinsey, Angus wanted to harness everything he'd learned and following a chance encounter with his co-founder, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, decided to launch Potential Life, a business that uses technology-enabled processes to allow people to function at the peak of their performance every day by helping them to develop new positive habits into an improved personal operating model. With such a successful consulting career and a decade spent dissecting peak leadership performance with Potential Life, we had so much to talk about in this conversation. And it was fantastic to sit down with Angus and get his advice and his insights for anyone looking to climb in the consulting industry. Angus was recommended to me by a former guest, Simon Williams, over at DMW Group, who, having been interviewed for the show, instantly said that I should speak to Angus. 
I must say he couldn't have been more right, and I was so pleased we were able to get this conversation in the diary. We cover a whole host of topics in this one, and there's simply too much to list in the intro. But to give you a glimpse into what you're about to listen to, a few of the insights that Angus shares today include the number one attribute that separates success and failure when starting your consulting career, and what you should be focusing on to give yourself the best possible chance of success. Angus's secret to how he was able to climb so successfully in McKinsey, and one that is equally applicable to you, regardless of the firm you're climbing in. And for those of you at the other end of your career, the critical question that you need to ask yourself if you are trying to decide if now is the time to be staying in consulting or moving on to your next career challenge. Whether you want to learn what it takes to get to the top in a firm like McKinsey, or you're already at the top and you're thinking about what's next for you, I know you are going to really enjoy this conversation. So with the intro done, with a little bit of today teased, all that's left for me to say is sit back, relax, and please enjoy my conversation with Angus Ridgway. Angus, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. So you were obviously introduced to me by Simon over at DMW, who was a previous guest. And I always ask my guests, you know, if there was someone you could interview for the show, who would you want to, to talk to? And, and he pointed me at you. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to today. Um, I also, I think you win the award for sort of the most exotic location ever recorded. So do you want to just share where you are at the moment and sort of the view that I can see out your window? Yes, well, I'm sitting here in my chalet in the Alps in Switzerland. For many years, this was just a sort of occasional holiday home. But with everything that happened over the last couple of years, we just kind of ended up staying here. And I realized for the last two years now, basically, this is where I live now. So uh, I really can't complain. No, certainly. I think there's, there's worse places to live, especially especially at the moment. And for those who maybe don't know you so well, to kick us off, it'd be great if you could give a bit of background on on who you are and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, with pleasure. So basically, I'm from uh, originally from Liverpool, although you'll struggle to find much of that in, in my accent today. Well, there's one or two little hints. I studied pure maths at university, at uh, Nottingham University, got a 2-1. And then age 21, started at Accenture. Uh, those days, it was called something different. Uh, and that was where I met Simon, actually. He was my first ever boss. I was very young in those days. I didn't really know what I was doing. And this is a theme, by the way, we, we, we might come back to. And then a few years later, when I think it was about 25, I just packed it all in because I'd met a French girl and thought I'd go to Paris for a weekend. So I, I rented a van, put my guitar and my record collection in and just turned up in Paris without a job, not speaking the language and not knowing whether I'd stay for a weekend or a week or, or a month. As it turned out, I ended up staying there for, for 20 years. So in a way, a, a big chunk of my adult life has been spent uh, in France, actually, and outside of the UK. I went to INSEAD, did an MBA, uh, and from there joined McKinsey in Paris. And this was really, I suppose, the moment when my so professional life started to come into shape, if you like, and was at McKinsey for 20 years. I'm sure we'll come back to that. And then 10 years ago, uh, founded Potential Life. So so big blocks of my life was 20 years at McKinsey and then uh, 10 years uh, as founder and CEO of Potential Life. Fantastic. Well, there is a lot for us to dig into and you're, you're quite right. I, I do want to go into sort of 
you know your earlier career years and yeah the what made you leave the UK and pack up and go to Paris but I I'm actually sort of going to take a, a bit of change to how I normally run these usually I'd go chronologically but I think just given all of the time you spent at McKinsey I'd, I'd love to start there and I think we can come back to you know your advice for for your younger self and some of the the sort of events that led you to McKinsey because I think McKinsey as an organization particularly in our industry is one that I don't know if it's the right word, but has a lot of mysticism around it. People know the name, the brand, you hear of things like the up or out culture, you hear about the work hours, you know, obviously you hear the positives as well, almost advising sort of the world's top CEOs on strategy and you know, it's the thing everyone wants to get into. And I I was intrigued when we were speaking sort of ahead of this, you, you mentioned actually McKinsey can be a very cruel, but a very kind place. I'd love to just understand more about why you said that and almost sort of drawing on that 20 years experience what you saw separated the best from the rest and why yeah very happy to talk about this because in a way all of that leads very neatly into what then happened when i founded potential life and when i'm talking about this you know it's, i don't think it's exclusive to mckinsey i think any sort of competitive demanding environment also has this sort of extremity of outcomes. But basically what I notice at McKinsey is you're either on top of it, dominating it, or it's on top of you dominating you. Uh, and there's no in-between spaces. You're either in one of the two states. And if you take a firm like McKinsey, it hires people with the same very good grades who went to the same small set of, of very good schools, mostly people from the same social background. And at the same age, put them in the same role and give them the same pace of progression. So, you know, a huge amount of sameness going on, mm -hmm. despite claims of diversity, you know, broadly speaking, it's fundamentally a huge amount of sameness. And the thing that struck me was, despite all of this sameness, almost from the very beginning, you saw a separation. Uh, and there seemed to be some people that were on it, uh, loving it, dominating, had oxygen to spare. And some other people who were part of this same sameness, just seemed to be struggling to keep their head above the water right from the very beginning. And that was the, the cruel and the kind thing, because those people who were dominating, they were loving every second. This, this, all of the resources were, were sort of accruing to them. So this, for them, this was a kind place. This was working for them. And for the others, they were just struggling to survive. Now, you know, I thought this was first and foremost, it seemed to be unfair. You know, but then I sort of once I got beyond the sort of the unfairness of it, I started to be interested in this. And what is it that those folks that the ones that are flourishing, what is it they're actually doing? Uh, and as a non-scientist, you know, I only had non-scientific words to put on this. And so I spent many years putting my own non-scientific words on this. And then until I, I met with my founder, co-founder Potential Life and we were able to take a more scientific approach. So that's a little bit what was behind that, um, that, that thinking, if you like. I love it. And maybe we'll start there because, as I said, I'm a fan of going in chronological order. Maybe it's the consultant in me. I like a start, middle and end. And I'll let you choose whether it's the non-scientific words you had then or the scientific words now. But what you just said struck me of actually even from the start, you could see this because, like you said, everyone starts the race at the same point. And again, as an outsider, for me, there's a you know, perception and having worked in other consultancies that broadly people will climb at the same rate and then slowly that will change when you get to sort of the middle grades is where you really see that accentuated but what you've just highlighted seems to say well actually you know day one or you know, maybe not quite day one some people 
top some people were thinking. Actually, really at that early stage, and you know, if there's any research you've done with potential life that draws on this, actually, what is it at that entry level that really differentiated those who were were loving it and dominating as as you were saying, or or being dominated by it? Yeah, very, very happy to talk about this. And I think before we get into the substance, I'd just like to sort of share some thoughts on what's actually going on here. You know, why is there a transition here? And I think it's a transition from a structured world to a fundamentally and increasingly unstructured world. So the world of the life of the student doing internships is just totally structured. You're told what to do. If you do it, you do well and you get great grades and, and you believe that you're great. Now, the, the world of work used to be quite structured. Uh, we had clear role descriptions and org charts that were stable over time and people could be given clarity and essentially told to just get on with their job. Now, because of AI and globalization and deregulation, all sorts of things happening, the world of work is, has become and is increasingly becoming unstructured. It's like a, a swirling moving network of things that are changing all the time. There's just no stability. Uh, and the, the question is, how does one thrive and flourish in an unstructured world? And, and that's why the separation is happening. Is some people have the code and some people don't. And so I can share with you some thoughts on, on you know, what is it that you need to have at your disposal? So, and some, some of these things are you're already aware of. But the question is, are you actually implementing them? And just before I describe this, you know, how do I know about this? Where did this come from? So when we found a potential life, and my co-founder, is, his name is Tal Ben-Shahar, and he's a, he's a very well-known global expert, many years at Harvard, in the field of positive psychology. And this is the formal science of flourishing. Uh, and what is flourishing? It's the science of being at the top of your game, those people who seem to be on fire. This has been studied now. Uh, and we, we took the approach of the humble integrator. There's been 25 years of research that's already gone into this now. And we said, let's take this broad body of research and find an articulation of it that both represents the science, so is representative of the science, but also is just accessible and easy to use. So what I'm about to share with you now is essentially uh, an expression of that articulation. And we came up with a, a framework, and this was already 10 years ago now, called the, the, the SHARP framework. We've, we've written a book on it called The Joy of Leadership, and your listeners are welcome to take a look at that as well. And I'd just like to describe the five, quickly, the five areas of sharp, if you like. And um, I'll do it in a way that describes what's counterintuitive about it. So, so that way, so it helps people latch onto it. So each letter of sharp corresponds to something. Uh, the letter S is about strengths. So most of us have heard that it's important to play to your strengths. Uh, that's not the insight. The real insight is that we've been conditioned to think that the way to progress in life is to fix your weakness, fix the bits that are not working. And we're not saying, by the way, we, we shouldn't do that. Of course we should do that. The point is that our sort of our strengths antennae are completely underdeveloped. If you ask somebody, tell me about your top three weaknesses or development needs and what have you got, you know, what, how are you working on them? You'd probably get a pretty good thought through list. If you say, now tell me about your top three character strengths and how are you living your life? to those strengths, people kind of scratch their head a bit and say, you know, I'm actually not sure if I can tell you what my top three character strengths are. So that goes to the heart of, the, of what's going on here. And it's a huge opportunity because it's when you play to your strengths, this is when you get your self-confidence because you feel as though you're being closer to the better version of yourself and curiosity kicks in. And, and when it comes to teams, the very essence of teamwork is celebrating how we 
complement each other because we all have our unique and different strengths rather than aligning to it to norm. So that's that's one area that's really important. The second letter is H for health. This isn't go to see my doctor health. This is what do we do about stress? You know, we've often been told that stress is bad. We should be eliminating stress. Well, that's fundamentally flawed as an idea. We've been told about work-life balance. That doesn't work anymore because there are no boundaries. Um, so we need a different relationship to stress. And here the idea is that it's got to do with our energy level. And when you're feeling energized, you can embrace lots of stress. And by the way, stress isn't bad. Stress is good for you. We need stress. If we didn't have stress, we wouldn't be getting out of bed in the morning. And the killer here is your energy level isn't just sort of given to you when you see an energetic person is tempting to say, oh, look at them. Aren't they lucky or annoying? They've got all that energy. In reality, we can do things to manage your energy level. And so taking ownership, self-regulate is really important. And you know, some of it's obvious, like getting a good night's sleep. The third area we call absorption. This has to do with the fact we're all so terribly distracted all the time. And, you know, oftentimes when we when we think we're multitasking, we're not multitasking. We're actually zero tasking. We're just staring at our screen, hovering between the different tabs in our browser, wondering which one to click on next. Is it my email? Is it that Word document? Is it the football scores? And huge chunks of our lives are just spent in that hesitation. And it's as though we're throwing hours of our lives out of the window every day and living not on the basis of 24 hour day, but maybe on the basis of a 21 hour day. So what we're saying is bring those hours back in and then you can choose to do what you want with those extra hours you've just gained. You can sleep them off if you want, or you can be more productive, but at least give yourself that extra oxygen. And that's really, really important for those people who want to be on top of their environment. Don't throw all those hours away just through distraction. Fourth area, it has to do with leadership and relationships. And, you know, in today's unstructured world, the, the question is not, am I a leader, but rather, why would anybody want to be led by me? Because if people don't like you in today's world, they can just get up and walk. So that's the killer question. And in terms of how we interact, there's a couple of things we need to be doing simultaneously, but people tend to think they're opposites and incompatible. And that's positivity, i.e. being kind and empathetic, combined with authenticity, i.e. being direct. And people tend to think, you know, I, I can be really direct and authentic, but it's going to come out negative. Or I can be really, really nice and caring, but I'll be holding something back, sacrificing my authenticity on the altar of positivity. Not only is it possible, but it's highly desirable to be both caring, but authentic at the same time. And that's what people want. And then the fifth and final area is, is purpose. This is why am I doing what I'm doing? It's that question. Not the big meaning of life question, that's for other people, but rather meaning in life, today, Wednesday, when I get home from work today and say, why did I do that today? What do you say? You're just mm. paying the rent or, or is there more to it? You know, is there some more meaningful framing that you have for this? And we can all do lots of things to reframe almost like a, a, a habitual action to put the meaning into what we're doing. And the benefits are huge in terms of courage of your convictions and not taking no for an answer. Just think about this. When, when somebody says no to you, how do you respond? Do you just go, oh, okay, I suppose that's no then. Or do you go, no, 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 let me explain. No, 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 let me. What's the difference between those two responses? It's the courage of your conviction, which comes from the level of purpose uh, that you have about why you're doing what you're doing. So there's so much power to be had from be operating from a position of purpose. So 
people who are doing some or all of the everything what I've described on the sharp framework and continuously improving in this are those that rise to the top in that separation I just described before and flourishing in an unstructured world. Wow, there's a lot for us to to I think unpack in there, Angus. And I really like the framework and I will put links to obviously the Potential Life website. I'll put a link to your book and, and the framework in the show notes so that anyone who's listening can, can go back and look and, and read more in the book. I think one question off the back of what we were talking about, particularly at that sort of junior level, but you know, it'd be interesting to get your take how this evolves over the sort of career journey is I agree with everything you've, you know, you've you've said there and having been on sort of my own life journey and being a little older than I was, I can understand a lot of that. I'm interested how this model evolves over somebody's life. And if I put myself in sort of a graduate's shoes, someone listening to this, and we do get a lot of graduate listeners maybe thinking, you know, you mentioned about conviction and saying, no, that's great, but am I going to stand up to the partner? Or I guess the other question is balance. So health, you know, again, i big believer in what you said around actually, you know, there's different types of stress, you know, we talk about de-stress, we don't talk about you stress so much, but actually, how you balance that, so you aren't taking it to an extreme where it becomes detrimental. So I'd love to sort of get your take on how you apply this to that sort of start with that graduate that first day at McKinsey, and what someone in those sort of, I guess, early grades of consulting should be thinking to really make themselves a high performer based on this model. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an awful lot to talk about here. You know, if I just look back at my own life, when I started at Accenture age 21, I didn't know why I was there. I just sort of landed there. And so I was goofing around aimlessly for at least three years. You know, it was okay. I was getting evaluated reasonably well, because you can kind of muddle through and kind of make it look as though it's all okay. But I knew what was going on. And then something happened in my life is I bumped into one of my, well, I kind of was working for a new manager and he had just come back from INSEAD and he just looked so sorted. You know, he wasn't 24, he was 27, which is still ridiculously young in the big scheme of things. And he just seemed to be so sorted. And I just remember that moment thinking, hmm, maybe I need to start actually getting sorted because I can't carry on. I don't think it's going to be good if I just carry on goofing forever. And we all have our own versions of this. And I think it's a, a wake up moment when you sort of realize that you're going to have to get your stuff together. Now, given that we, you know, people start professionally so young these days, and this, the world is so complex, I think one of the questions around, uh, and, you know, I, I, I want to be cautious on the words I use, because I don't want to come over in the wrong way. But so taking yourself seriously, I think is is really important. So this this question of purpose from a young age is really important. And it's become harder. You know, when I started out, there weren't many job opportunities available. So there weren't many things to choose from. And so you just took the best option you could get. You just ran with it for a bit. And then for a few years later, you came up for air and had a look around and, and say, you know, what was that been about? And what I noticed today, and I'm thinking about my kids who just graduated, the possibilities are huge. And that can be blinding and lead you into a sort of state of inaction. And so what I really encourage people to try to do is to think about 
why you're doing something and, and go after something purposefully because you have a good answer to why am I doing this? And, and in order to try to answer that, think about what energizes you, what's your passion, what gives you energy and liberate yourself from the constraints of career. Really think about what are your hobbies? If you're interested in space and SpaceX and rockets or what have you, is there something you can do that's down that path somehow? Even if it's to do with software that's linked to this, go after that. You're going to have a whale of a time. You can do if you want that. So really sort of open up, look inside yourself, think about where your energy comes from and, and go after that. Don't take all of these formal career structures too seriously. Some great advice. One thing on that, and yeah, I, I know we've touched on it, and I'm sure we'll touch on it more a bit later, sort of. But actually, you, you touched on your your kids there have just left uni, and you know, I'll, I'll I won't sort of use them. I'll use myself. You know, when I think back to leaving university, you know, my my purpose was to to make as much money as I could, whatever that looked like. It didn't quite work out probably as well as I'd hoped. But the the question more is, particularly at those sort of younger ages and I don't say that sounding patronizing to anyone listening who's 21 through five but you know when I was that age my purpose was to make partner and actually that you know that energized me until it stopped energizing me but you kind of I guess answered it a little there but for anyone listening I am assuming purpose is outside of the financial realm so you're not saying purpose is how do I make as much money as I can but I'm interested how you help people tackle that is it what you said around just think of your hobbies and do that? Or, or how do you square the the want for status, money, et cetera, with the want to follow your purpose? Yeah, I mean, I do think at the end of the day, it, it does come down to your sort of internal energy meter, if you like. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to get old. And the only thing that sort of keeps us going is the thing that provides energy to us. So you're better off at an early age trying to figure out what those sources of energy are. But in the meantime, we have material things to concern, like, you know, I'm, am I going to be able to buy a house? Am I going to be able to buy a, a sports car if that's the kind of thing you're into? And you know, I encourage people to take um, the marginal value of an extra day approach to this. So, you know, I can stay one extra day in consulting and that will give me X with perspectives Y and it adds up the following way or age 25 or eight, eight or 29 or whatever it is. I can go somewhere else and the marginal value of my external options add up the following way. And, and this isn't just a financial gauge. Of course, that does play. But it's also a skills gauge. You know, what am I learning by staying here versus what I will learn somewhere else? And has my learning curve peaked where I am? And will it be steeper somewhere else? And what's my freedom gauge? Is the place I'm at giving me the freedom to explore and grow compared to the outside world. So think about this marginal value of the extra day compared to the alternatives, both financially in terms of skills and in terms of freedom to explore. And maybe that just provides a language to sort of think this through. And I think that can be helpful. Uh, and maybe you do get to some points where you just feel as though it's, it's comfortable, but you know what, I kind of plateaued or I'm, I'm gonna make loads more money. I can tick that box for staying, but the other couple of things, I'm not so sure. And, over time, that's not going to add up well. So maybe I need to actually think about moving somewhere else. I think a great uh, frame to think about it. And like you say, you know, putting the money purpose within a, a sort of bounds of other, other elements that are equally important, like you say, and, and actually only as I get older, I seem to find the others more important. One thing, and I'd just be interested, again, more some sort of specific advice, and it may relate to Sharp, but you mentioned 
that point around that the big challenge for people entering the consulting industry from that graduate level was the unstructured nature of of career. And I think it's a really interesting point because thinking back now to sort of when I was younger, you spend so long in a structured grade, you know, get your grades, go to university, get your degree. And suddenly it can be quite a shock to be in the world of work where, like you say, it, it is very fluid. Actually, what can people be doing, particularly at that sort of young age, to get themselves ready for an unstructured you know, career if they are not naturally inclined to being an unstructured person. <laughs> yeah, I think there are some practical things to do. One of which is a sort of age-old piece of advice, which I didn't listen to, but I, I wish I had more, and it's even more relevant today. And that's about building up your network. You know, when I joined McKinsey, people used to say, become best friends with your clients, team members of today, because they'll be CEOs in 15 years time, and then they'll become your clients as best friends. I thought, yeah, I understand that intellectually, but you know, I'm not a natural networker, so so I never really put the energy I could or should have in it. And when I look at friends of mine who did much more of that, maybe because they're naturally inclined towards it, they had this swarming network of buddies who became their clients. I thought, yeah, that was good. <laughs> Wish I'd done that. And I think the thing about a destructured world is, in a way, the old formal structures been replaced by a new kind of lattice. And what's the lattice made up of? It's made up of relationships. And so in a way, the new structure is the, is the lattice of the relationships that you've built up over time. And so it's not just a kind of cool, nice to have thing, which it may have been back in 1994. I think in 2021, it's an absolute requirement. You have to overinvest in consciously building up that support network. Uh, and it starts really uh, on day one. So that's one really important thing I don't think you can do without. Another one, which may sound a little bit left field for an unstructured world, is about communication. Now, we, we live in a world of influence. So knowing how to talk properly is really important. And when I say talk properly, I mean understanding the power of pronunciation, of intonation, uh, of pace. And take inspiration from some of the great talkers, whether you like their content or not. You know, one person who I admire is Simon Sinek. He's a genius of communication. I'm not sure that he's ever said anything genuinely original ever, but he's definitely influenced me because the way he communicates allows me to internalize things that otherwise wouldn't have happened. An absolute genius. And listen to his voice, listen to his pronunciation, listen to his pacing intonation, it's all in there. This is an absolute killer skill that some people are lucky enough to kind of have naturally. Most of us, especially if we were doing engineering or scientific degrees, were woefully underdeveloped in that area. Uh, and what's true for verbal communication is also true actually for written communication, learning how to write properly. Again, the same thoughts of, of stylistically pacing, synthesis is, is really important. Uh, there's a book that I recommend, which is called The Pyramid Principle by uh, somebody called Barbara Minto. It's an old classic. And basically, it really just helps you structure the way you communicate. And her thesis is bad communication isn't just about communication style. It's about having a cluttered mind. Uh, and so we need to learn how to structure our thinking by decluttering it. And then communication becomes much more 
straightforward. So uh, for any of you sort of wondering, what can I do here? Get the pyramid principle and start practicing it. Really good points. And I, I love what you say about Simon Sinek. And I think in today's world where we have social media and actually that content is much more easily accessible and actually much more easily comparable. You talked about how in career now people can move company very quickly. Well, actually you can move, you know, person you'd watch on social media very quickly and being able to articulate that is just as important in the business world and you know, in consulting as it is in sort of if you want to become a you know, an, an influencer should we say one question and uh, probably this would be my last one before we move on on the sort of what separated the the best from from the rest of McKinsey but we spent quite a bit of time on that sort of early starter you obviously you spent just over 20 years there, you saw a whole number of people come and go, climb to a certain point and then leave. I'd love to know, was there a point in that sort of career pyramid that you often saw people fall at? If so, what was it? And maybe coming back to the sharp model, what was it that either they hadn't leveled up enough or they had forgotten about that caused that to happen? Yeah, I mean, I was there for a long time. And so in a way, 20 years is, is really five careers of you know, maybe four years each, vast simplification. But what that means is there were five moments of reinvention. And, and I think, you know, if, if you're embarking on this, it perhaps seems a bit weird to be thinking those terms because you'd be happy just to have one chapter of four years, perhaps, uh, and maybe make it a partner or something. You know, but this idea of it's never over, you're always reinventing is important. And that might sound a little bit daunting because it'd be comforting to be able to say, when I make it partner, I've arrived. Guess what? You haven't arrived the day you make partner. It's just the beginning. And you have to get into this idea of perpetual motion, perpetual reinvention. That is the model uh, for success. And always ask yourself the acid question, am I dominating my environment or is it dominating me? You could use a much more unpleasant language about slavery. Am I a slave to my environment or I'm making this environment my slave? It's not very nice language, but I'm deliberately using it to be extreme here. There's no in-between space. And when it comes to promotions, the question is, what's the power dynamic going on? And this isn't just a McKinsey thing. It is true in any environment. Are they thinking we wouldn't dare not promote him or her, which means the power dynamic is all with that person? Or are, they, are you begging, pleading, hoping desperately that they're going to promote me? In which case, the power dynamic is with the institution. Again, it's always completely one or the other. And you have to ask yourself, which of these situations am I, am I in? And if you're in the wrong situation, then you're likely to be suffering. And even if you kind of muddle through this time round, maybe the time after it's not going to work for you. And so you have to be lucid and sort of honest with yourself about that. So that's actually not really answering your question at all, but it's just kind of what came into my mind as, as you brought that up. Well, I, I think while it answers a slightly different question, I, I think it actually touches the heart of what I was trying to get at and probably is much more, more applicable. And while I appreciate it's quite a stark and, and you know, to your points, a slightly crude metaphor, that the slavery piece, I think, is actually a really interesting thought experiment for anyone listening because you know, as consultants it's very easy to get wrapped up in the game you know the promotion rounds and asking yourself am I a slave to this or is it is it my slave is a I think quite a powerful frame and let's hold on this because I think it is a, a really interesting area and one thing you mentioned within that was your point around reinvention were those two pieces linked so 
was it that reinvention came when you felt that power dynamic was shifting or you you could see it? How, how did you approach that reinvention? And as I say, were they tied together? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, so I think if I look back on my 20 years at McKinsey, I think in the big scheme of things, I had a relatively easy ride, but I had a bump fairly early on. I think it may have been my second or third engagement. So I was this British guy in France. You know, that was never going to be that easy. And I found myself with a very, very French client and a, a very, very French team, McKinsey team. And it just wasn't working. I wasn't tuned in enough. And, and you know, maybe they didn't like me or something. I don't know. But and it was painful, really painful. And you start to have the doubts of deep failure and not just the thought of being kicked out and having to go find something else to do. The much more painful thing is just the pain of actual failure. And you know, most of us haven't had much in the way of failure to deal with. So I remember going through this thing, this isn't, I'm really not enjoying this. Uh, this I'm not going to let this happen again. And so if I stay here, you know, I said to myself, it, I can only stay if I find a way to make it work in completely the other way. So I, I kind of, the pain of it, uh, my response was to say, sort of never again, be ultra cautious about this, about, and, and therefore be very, very thoughtful very early on about setting the conditions. And what I noticed, and, and you know, this four-year sort of cycle is often used actually, I think, in consulting as being the sort of the duration or the, the cadence of reinvention. Why? I was just thinking about this. I, I think it's because four years is the time it takes to, to do something worthwhile. It's the runway. Yeah, by the time you get a team together, you know, build something, have real impact, and then are ready to hand it on to perhaps the next generation, you know, four years go by if you're building a new office or a new practice or something. So I think that's what happened there. And in my case, you know, I, I started off doing financial modeling at McKinsey. I mean, McKinsey took a cursory look at my CV. No, that's a bit unfair. But, you know, they, you, they, I was a new person. I just arrived. I studied pure maths at university. So they saw the word maths. I was doing financial modeling. And I did that for a few years. And it was kind of okay. It's not my real sort of natural habitat. And then after maybe two or three years, I found myself on my first strategy engagement. And that was a light bulb moment for me because all of a sudden, I started to see a link between pure maths and strategy. Because, you know, pure mathematics is very abstract, but it's all about seeing patterns and simplifying a hugely complex world. Well, that's what kind of strategy is too. And so my sort of pure mathematical brain got to, to come and apply itself in the world of strategy. And that was my first moment of acceleration. I thought, you know what, this is me. I can do this stuff much better than financial modeling in the oil industry. So all of a sudden I was closer to my natural energy sources and, and, and you know, my natural talents. And I started to have my first uplift and acceleration that carried me for, for a few years until I moved on to the next thing and then the next thing. So yeah, the, you do have these natural waves of, of energy. For anyone listening, how can they be attuned to that? So maybe it is just listen to that energy like you talked about. But for some people, I imagine that's quite daunting because maybe take your second leap, if, if that's a useful example, is many people will be in a sort of phase they enjoy. You know, I'm the expert at X, I'm the go-to for this. And actually, if I change, that's fraught with potential risks. You've, you've almost got to go down before you come back up. Actually, what advice would you give to people, either from your own journey or sort of your research with potential life, to help them 
understand both when is the right time and how to get over that sort of concern and navigate that sort of transition period? I think I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little bit odd here, but, but I think positive living, we need to view it as a muscle that we develop almost like a habit. Even meaningful living, you know, there's some really interesting research that's gone into the meaning of life. Is this a cognitive process where we think it through and somehow at some point we, we find the answer to the question of the meaning of life through deep thinking? Is that the approach? I think that I think more recent research says that actually it's more about meaningful living, which is more of a habitual thing. It's more of a muscular. I'm talking obviously talking about brain muscles here, not not body muscles. Just it being the habit of reframing to put meaning into your daily life actually makes a lot of the the big questions about the meaning of life just kind of dissolve away. So the way to answer the big question of the meaning of life is simply to live meaningfully day in, day out. And what's true for that, I think is true for a consultant. Get into positive life habits. If you are sleeping well, exercising well, and eating well, just to take the three basics in terms of where your energy comes from, and the first one is sleeping, then you will have just that little bit extra oxygen that will allow you to see around the corners and anticipate where the next obstacle is going to be. Healthy living is a habit. If you're not mindlessly distracted because you're spending hours and hours and hours doing some, pick your favorites of distracting activity, but rather in the habit of engaging mindfully and going from fake multitasking to real serial monotasking, and by doing so, just liberating space for yourself because you get your tasks done more quickly and then you've got oxygen and what do you do with that oxygen well do what you want with it you can relax you can recover or you can think or look forward so i think the the answer is not a thinking or a tool or a technique answer but rather just live your life according to this idea of positive life habits and a lot of this stuff will just fall into place how do people form those positive life habits? You know, there's a, there's a few things, but I think the, the most important is to celebrate the s- small. Now, we tend to say, I need to bring about big change in my life. Therefore, I need to look at big unitary changes in order to make big change happen. That's actually wrong. We don't make big unitary changes. The only changes we make are small ones. So we better start celebrating the small stuff. Uh, and in order to give you a frame that links small to big, think of compound interest on your savings account. That's small stuff that becomes big over time. That's how we need to be thinking about this. You know, a few years ago, I was uh, very unhealthy, <laughs> working too hard. And one day I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to lose five kilos in weight. So I bought myself a pair of running shoes and started running around our local park in Paris, which is exactly one kilometer. And I ran around the park three times was a bit exhausted, got home. Oh, well, that's three, that's three kilometers. I'm just going to Google how many calories you burn running three kilometers. So I looked that up, and some of you may know this. It's about 70 calories per kilometer. So I, I just burnt 200 calories. So, oh, okay, 200. I'm just going to Google five kilograms of human mass, how many calories, and you may or may not know this, but it's about 7,000 calories per kilogram. So we're talking 35,000 calories, 200, 35,000. This is not going to happen. So I gave up immediately. 
and never went running around the park again for several years because the enormity, the enormity of the unitary goal that I'd set myself was wrong. In reality, the, the 3K was right. The thing is, you just need to do it every single day without wavering and make a habit out of it. And it was a few years later when my, my wife helped me out because she took the same unused running shoes out from their dusty closet. She put them at the end of my bed and she said, they're the first shoes you're going to put on in the morning. I don't care what you do, but you're going to move your body. If you walk to work, brilliant. If you go for a run, brilliant. Just move every day. And what she set into motion was this idea of small changes every day that after a while just take you to a new place. And that's how we need to start thinking about this. So one good night's sleep isn't the answer, but knowing to switch off your screens at 10.30 and maybe read a book for half an hour and then lights off at 11 and it just becomes the way you do things, that's valuable. I love the story. I think also, like you're saying, it's actually when you look at life, there's probably a lot of areas you can do that. You know, take bedtime, as you just said, I know I'm guilty, as I'm sure many many of the listeners of my listeners are, of actually you know watching a Netflix TV show. We've all we've all watched far too much Netflix this lockdown. I mean, I'll, I'll be horrified. I think Netflix does a sort of year in review, and I'll be horrified when they do the this sort of lockdown version. But actually, those little wins of maybe I won't watch that next episode of the show. I will, like you say, go to bed and read, or go for a run, or or even go for a walk. I think that it was actually something that struck me a lot when I left London. Is you forget how much you walk in London compared to when you drive around wherever else you live. But I really like that. And take that running. Was it then just a case of celebrating the little win? So even if you didn't do the 3K, but you did 1K a day, that's still you know, still success? Because I guess that's the, the other challenge in a consulting archetype is success or failure can sometimes feel quite binary. Yeah, yeah. No, but, it, but this is true. I mean, just take, um, you know, before, when I was traveling a lot, Without realizing it, I was moving my body quite a bit just because walking through airports, there's actually quite a bit of walking involved at both ends. You know, it's small, but you do, you know, I was traveling every day. So that was all kind of, it was like a, a base load that was worth having. And then when all of that stopped, I realized I'd just be sitting in this same chair all day, just like everybody else. So going for a walk was a little gift. Just get up and go, enjoy that walk. And you have to just consciously, what's going to be my small my small change today and enjoy it. I think the other, there's another just thought for you here. And it has to do with beating yourself up and feeling guilty versus another frame. You know, we, we tend to think that change is hard. And therefore, because it's hard, we, we, we say it's going to be difficult. And then we think we're going to fail. And then because we think we fail, we feel guilty because we failed. And we beat ourselves up about it. And so there's a whole negative vibe around this idea of, of, of growing. There's another alternative frame for this, which is to really to cut yourself some slack, to be kind to yourself. But there's a but. And the but is take responsibility. So assume the consequences of your actions. And that's very powerful. And just take, take the example of somebody who, it's all of us actually, who overindulges over the Christmas period. And again, maybe pile on the pounds. There are lots of people who, for the five months that follow Christmas, are hating themselves because they still haven't lost those three kilos they put on. And then finally spring comes and maybe a month of May and then they can say, okay, I'm back to my pre-Christmas weight or something like that. And then it repeats next Christmas. So basically, five twelfths of your life 
is spent in beat-up mode and guilt. It doesn't have to be like that. You, on the 4th of January, you can say, you know what? Indulge over Christmas is really good, and I'm going to do this every year. Now I'm just going to quietly get back into sort of healthy living. I'm not going to concentrate too much on it, but I'm just going to get back into movement. And probably by the 15th of February, the problem's gone away just because you focused on, on positive life habits rather than feel, feeling guilty, which leads you down a worse spiral. So I think cut yourself some slack, be kind to yourself, but take responsibility, as I think is such an important thing for, for all of us. Great advice. And while I think the metaphor is one that can relate to anyone, and I think we're all guilty of that, I don't know if it takes me five months. I, I certainly don't beat myself up if it hasn't. But I, I think that point, and particularly in you know, a high-pressure career like consulting where you are in the client as a very expensive resource, you're meant to know, you know, you're, you're, you believe you're meant to know all of the answers. And actually, it can be very easy to beat yourself up for the smallest thing. You know, the, the full stop wasn't on the PowerPoint, the, the alignment, you know, the, the boxes weren't quite aligned. I said the wrong thing to the client. And actually, like you say, that's what I, what I what I'm inferring from you is those are the things that get you in that negative state, which is that sort of spiral we talked about, as opposed to that positive state of starting to think more holistically about your life and where you want to go. I think Angus, we've talked quite a bit about sort of what led you to everything that potential life does, and I'd, I'd probably say why don't we actually go on to a little bit more about that. And you know, you talked about actually your journey to starting the business. I think we've talked a little bit about actually the the sort of science behind it. But I'd love to find out why you decided that this was the thing you were going to do. You know, you'd, you'd had a very successful career at McKinsey. You'd been very happy there. What was it that made you decide, right, actually, this is the time I'm going to go out and launch Potential Life, launch this business? Yeah, I mean, it started off as a, as a hobby, a side project that just became real. And so, as I mentioned before, right from the very beginning of McKinsey, I was always interested in, in this separation. And I had my own language for this, uh, non-scientific. So I would talk about being at the top of your game and having fire in your belly and, 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 and so on. And I got really involved in the whole leadership development side of things at McKinsey. And how do you create a, a vibrant group of leaders globally across the organization? It's, you know, it's a really interesting scaling question. Do you put them all on training programs? How much does that cost? Do they really work? Does a week off-site actually achieve anything? So lots of question marks around both the content of leadership, but also the methodology of leadership development. It was also becoming increasingly obvious to me through my clients that the world of work was changing very rapidly. And so I could see that clients were increasingly clamoring for this new type of liberated top of your game type of leadership and saying, basically saying things like, just imagine what we could achieve if we had an organization full of people like that. How do we do that? And you know, we don't have a magic wand. And so this idea started to germinate in my head. Wouldn't it be great if we could find a, a way of scaling the science of flourishing to benefit organizations, but also to benefit humanity? This is in a way, this is kind of like a gift to the world. There's no reason why I should limit this to, to profit-making companies. And so that just became a, a, a passion, but also an intellectual pursuit in terms of how do you create such a solution. And you know, what, what we're really thinking about here is, I think we, we, know, we think that leadership is about owning the difference you want to make to your world. At the end of the day, that's it. We can all make a difference to the world as we see it. That's 
our difference. And the real question is, are you owning that? So what we like to think we're doing is we're helping hundreds of thousands, millions of people own the difference they make to the world. And if by doing that, we, we can help people have a good time. So that was our, our vision from 10 years ago. And it still is exactly that today. And so this was a side project that, you know, I, I met Tal Ben-Jahar, who's the, my co-founder and the scientist in our, in our marriage. Uh, and we just started chatting. And in our first meeting, we said, let's, let's just explore this. Let's see where we can take this. And so we were both traveling all the time. And so we would meet up in, in airport lounges and we'd, we'd arrange to spend half a day sitting in a corner with sheets of paper. People thought we were complete <laughs> nutters. And we'd do this every three or four weeks. We'd arrange to be in Rome together, in London or in Washington, D.C., or wherever we both happened to be. And little by little, this started to come together. And after about a year, it took us about a year, maybe a year and a half of crafting. And in that first year and a half, we still both had our comfortable lives. So we hadn't committed. And so in a way, you know, we both had the option to withdraw at any moment. And we had one meeting. It was actually in Paris airport in Charles de Gaulle. It was about, we were about 18 months in. And we, I just remember we looked at each other and said, you know what, we've got this now. We have to make a choice now. Otherwise we're just kind of just playing along. So we either lock this away in a drawer and throw that key away and never open it again because it's, we're not up for it and it, doing so would just be a distraction. Or we go for it. If we go for it, you've got to give everything else up. And so we said, yeah, let's go for it. And so uh, that's what we did. And, um, and that was the sort of pivotal moment where, and it was very exhilarating, you know, to launch a new adventure from scratch and create a legal entity and recruit staff and find developers and figure out how to build a platform and everything that you do when you start, it's really, really, really exciting. And I can only encourage people to have a moment in their life where they sort of go after something from scratch. They're the fun times. I love the story. And I can only imagine being someone in the lounge watching you with your, uh, your bits of A3 paper and post-it notes in the corner of the room doing all of these brainstorming sessions. You mentioned there the sort of what led you to actually decide to go all in and it, it sounded like quite an easy decision. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't quite that easy, or maybe it was. So tell me if it was really just you and Tal looked each other in the eyes and said, let's go. But if it was more than that, I'd love to know, you know, some of those questions you asked yourself or maybe discussed with your with your wife or with friends to say, actually, yes, this is the, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to go all in on this. Were, were there anything, any questions that you did sort of ask yourself or others, or, or was it so you just felt it in your gut and were like, yeah, this is the time? A lot of that thinking probably already had happened before, but at a more of a meta level. So now after several years in consulting, you, you, you reach a level of financial comfort and regardless of the firm. So I'd got beyond the point at which I felt I needed to be earning money for the sake of providing my baseline of family comfort. Now, maybe I have a low baseline. And by the way, I encourage people to keep a low baseline because that's where your freedom comes from. But yeah, so that, that, that bit had been resolved. So I, wasn't, I knew I wasn't in need of doing stuff just to, to pay the rent ever again. So that was, that was cool. And then this is sort of the advancing years of your life question. At that point, I think I was 47, no, 45, I'm now 55. And your receding runway, <laughs> it becomes very visible. You don't have that when you're in your 20s, but you will have it when you're 45. And you say, you know, you need runway. To, to build something. 
And I don't know what I'm going to be like when I'm 55. Now I say the same thing about when I'm going to be 65. But, you know, then I and so I want to be sure that the runway is long enough. So if if I'm going to jump, I have to sort of jump relatively soon. So that was that was that was playing. And there was another thing that I realized, and maybe this is just about me, but I knew I wanted to create something in this field. I also felt that I didn't have the sharpness of expertise all on my own to do it all on my own. And so I knew I was going to have to find a partner. And we had a family holiday in the Maldives. Definitely recommend, by the way. And I was thinking this all through. This is beforehand. And I remember my final thought on the flight back to Europe was, I've got to find somebody to do my thing with somebody who's the sort of the legitimacy, the, the, whether it's scientific or industrial legitimacy. And that was a big, big moment because at that moment, my antennae for people started really to open up. And it was only a few months later that I bumped into Tal. But instead of letting Tal just pass by, which is what I would have done previously, I thought, oh, he looks interesting. I'm actually going to sit next to him at dinner this evening and we're gonna, I'm going to start a conversation. And so I was, I was being deliberate and conscious about looking potentially for answers. It turned out that he, he was the answer. But, you know, that's not the point. It's more of a... So some of that thinking was already happening beforehand. That point around how you two met, I think, is we haven't brought it out earlier, but that deliberate nature, you know, we've talked about sort of purpose and meaning and, and being deliberate in actions. But actually, that point of, and you probably got a scientific name for it, call it the universe, call it what you will, the when you look for something, it comes. And actually, like you've said there, when you were looking for a scientific a sort of partner or you become more attuned to it. The slightly more crude example is if you want to buy a BMW, suddenly all you see on the road is BMWs. But I I think that's a really powerful skill. Is that something, actually just thinking about your career, is that something you'd been attuned to previously? Or was that sort of, you know, did the towel meeting really sort of hit you with that, you know, the importance of that skill? No, I mean, no, no. I, I, this, I, had, I can't say I had some framework in my head that I was applying here. I just, I just knew that I didn't have the full cocktail all, all on my own. But it's true, you know, I think there has been research that's gone into lucky people. And the, the answer is, is not luck. It's actually making your own luck, at which point it's no longer luck, uh, right? And tilting the odds in your favor by certain things that so-called lucky people tend to do more of. One of which is, yeah, is, is building out that network and seeing the connections that other people might not see. That, and therefore, because they're not seeing it, it looks like luck, but it's actually not luck. Exactly. One thing from what you just talked about there around you'd wanted to do something and, and actually you made the point, you know, you'd reached a certain level in, in McKinsey. And I think you've been quite polite throughout this, Angus, of not talking about how high in McKinsey you, you went. But anyone who is listening can go and look at your LinkedIn profile because you, know, you, you ran the global leadership development. You, you know, you're head of strategy for was it, it was the EMEA region, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, you, you made it to the, you know, the top, top table in McKinsey. And, and the reason for this buildup is I've seen a lot of people, like you say, in consulting, if, if you do well enough for long enough, you reach a point where the financial element is no longer a concern. But actually, I find for some that can be a real challenge the other way, because if you're taking home a substantial salary, actually, the you know almost the golden handcuffs can be quite tight, if you like, the, the challenge of actually, do I risk you know going out to start a, a potential life, let's say, where I don't know how much money we're going to make, I don't know how much success we're going to have, versus do I stay where I'm guaranteed, you know, this, that, and the other. And having, I guess, been at those levels, having probably met people like that, I'd love to hear your advice. You know, when someone says to you, 
I'm not sure on this, Angus. The financial element, I guess, just to make it a longer question, and my listeners will know I love long questions. The other side is also uh, the importance of success. So, you know, as a senior partner in McKinsey, you were top of the tree. And suddenly, you know, and this isn't my judgment on you, it's, you know, I've, I've, this is what people have said to me. Suddenly you leave that firm and you are the entrepreneur on your own, doing your own thing, and you're risking it. You know, if it fails, you're. Angus, the you know, I'm sort of not not judging you, but you become Angus, the failed entrepreneur, not Angus, the sort of head of McKinsey. I'd love to know how you help people, or how you squared those in your mind, if it's different to what we've talked about, but how you help people square both that financial but that status element of of going out on their own. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of questions there. Let me just talk a bit about money for a second, because I think it's really important to be crystal clear about your relationship to money. And I think one of the mistakes is that. People don't like talking about money, which is stupid because it's it's top of mind for, for everybody. My advice, and this both pieces of advice might sound a bit odd, is when you're young, don't bother saving. Because if you're going to become wealthy, it's because the shape of your earnings curve, it has a massive upward inflection. So all of that sort of infinitesimal saving you did when you're at the very beginning of the curve is totally relevant to when your income multiplies by a factor of 100. And you can earn overnight more than you saved over four or five years. So don't waste your energy. If your intention is to become wealthy, don't think you're going to save your way there when you're not actually earning anything yet. That's nice. That means you can just go out and spend your salary, right? Brilliant. But there's another side to this equation, which is if you want freedom, keep yourself a cheap lifestyle. You know, you decide whether you want a boat or how many homes you think you need or all of the other trappings you can do. I mean, but the more of that stuff you pile on in a non-flexible way, the more you may be gaining trappings, but you're basically losing your freedom. And so keep it simple. Really keep it simple. And that's one of the things that I was lucky enough to do for, well, I've got one area where I didn't keep it simple. I bought loads of property but that's just, in, in a way, immobilized, non-productive capital, which I suppose, in theory, I could sell off, but I don't want to sell, have to sell off. But uh, apart from that, simple life. That means if I don't earn anything, actually doesn't matter that much. That's the freedom. So that's how I encourage people to think about their, their, their financial sort of uh, formula. Then you had a question about status. What can I say? I mean, when you've been a, a senior partner at McKinsey and, and led the various practices I've led, you've got status for life. So even once you've left, you're still that person. So that maybe I'm in a sort of special case because I, I don't know if it's true for everybody, but I think it basically is. You know, you, you, your partner at Deloitte, partner here, partner with you, you've got status. So you don't lose anything when you leave. So I think the much more interesting question is what are you going to do with your remaining years and how are you going to have fun with it? And I really encourage people just to relinquish status anxiety. Uh, nobody gives a damn. No, other people don't give a damn. So why should you um, focus on doing stuff that looks as though it's going to be fun? And then you can have a good time. Really good advice on on both questions. And I, now where I, I am, and I, I know we're near one, I know many partners, are, so this isn't sort of said, said in that frame, but I, I know what you mean about the sort of younger years saving point. And I think, you know, particularly this is a consulting podcast, so that applies heavily in this industry. And I, I think also your, your other points around don't get the trappings. I guess, interesting question from what you've said. As a theory, I buy what you're explaining 
spend all when you're young, save more when you're older. I'm reducing this to a yes, no, and I'm sure there'll be a broader answer. But how do you know what that tipping point is? You said it, it's to an extent relative to the individual, but are there any things that you say, actually, this is probably a good time to stop increasing your lifestyle and start saving that money? No, I don't know. I do remember in the early days of McKinsey, one year, there was a bit of a bumper year and they gave us all an exceptional bonus. And I can't actually remember how much it was, but it was quite a bit of money. It was, you know, I was, yeah, it was the early days, but maybe let's make up a number. Let's say 25,000 euros, something like that. So, you know, definitely worth having. And I remember receiving this handwritten note from the managing partner saying, we've, you know, well done, we've had a great year. And guess here's 25K. I remember thinking that there was zero emotional response for me. I was just thinking, you know what? This is just going to literally a few extra digits on my bank account. There's no response. And I remember thinking what would have created a, a high emotional response would have been some kind of encouraging feedback on this difficult project I happened to be on at the time. And so in a way, that, that was, had higher value for me than this zero response 25K. And at that point, I started to think, well, this, is, this money stuff is really interesting. It really is weird and unexpected, the relationship we, we have to it. And um, so there's no easy formulate answer here. I think we all have to find our own relationship to it. My point is, don't avoid the conversation with yourself and with those who are close to you, because everybody's thinking about this stuff. So you better actually talk about it. I think you're right. And it, it is something, and I don't know if it's just Brits or just the world at large, we are very sensitive about the topic of money and, and probably more so than we should be. On the status side, and this is probably a much better question to elaborate on the money side. So I'll, I'll ask this and it, it probably will get a better answer to, to what is hopefully a better question is, again, I, I buy the point of, yeah, I'm going to save, I'm going to live cheaply. And actually, if in my early years, I'm, I'm comparable with my peers. So you know, some simplistic examples, I'm going to the pub at the same time, I'm buying the same suits, I'm going on the same holidays. Assuming that this is not the norm, which it isn't, you know, a lot of people will live to their means. How did you or how do you advise others almost to get comfortable with the peer pressure that can come with that? You know, if you've, again, completely caricaturing, if you've made partner and everyone has a Porsche and you're the only one who doesn't have a Porsche, or everyone goes on holiday to a certain place, and you're the only one who goes camping, you know, there, there's a feeling of, oh, my, my keeping up with the Joneses. How did you come to terms with it? Or how do you help others or advise others to, to overcome that? Really interested in your take. Yeah, I think we all need to make a feature of everything we do. It comes back, we've talked a bit, we haven't yet talked about color, but at some point we should do. You know, if you buy a Skoda, Make a, Skoda's are fantastic cars. Make a feature of it. They're brilliant cars. They're better cars than Porsches. Or basically, they are Porsches for one-tenth of the price, or at least they're Audis at one-tenth of the price. You know, find your own way of making a feature of this. If you're going camping, what a brilliant thing to do. I wish I went camping more often. I really do. They're the best holidays you can possibly imagine. Now, some people will say, the last thing I want to do is go camping. Okay, but then camping isn't your example. But whatever you do, make a feature out of it for what it is, rather than doing it in the shadow of what other people are, are doing. That's, that's no way to live your life, really. Really good answer. And, and you've teed me up. And it was something I wanted to touch on. So why don't we go there around your point on color? And I, I'll let you explain this, because you will do a much better job than I will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer that for, for so many people trying to get into consulting, and actually, we can extend this to any sort of early steps in professional life. 
I think there's this idea of color. And people think that when you're being hired, that you're being selected first, and then you're going to get kind of potentially rejected. They think that that's the, the process. In fact, it's the other way around. Everybody gets rejected first, and then a few people get selected. And so the first round in any recruiting process starts by taking the, the 10,000 applications and rejecting 9,500 of them for housekeeping reasons, because the grades weren't quite there and multiply, multiply, multiply. So what I'm saying is all of the sort of by the book stuff is basically to avoid rejection. That's step one. The step that really matters is actually getting selected. That's what they do with the 500 that turn into 10. And what you need for that is color. You need to stand out. You need to be different. You need to have a reason for them taking an interest in you. And so you need to think about what is my color? What am I bringing to this party? How am I making this firm not just bigger, but actually making it better? Because the color I bring to the mix adds a different shade. That's a totally alternative thinking because everybody says, I need to get the grades. And if I have the grades and I tick all the boxes and do all of these, how to get into consulting stuff and so on. No, no, no. That's just, that, that just gets you past the I didn't get rejected phase. So I think this is actually a, a really sort of important thing. Uh, and, you know, color, I think, is a sort of metaphor for your sources of energy and just being able to talk with passion and energy so that you come to life in the interview talking about anything. And again, if it's about rockets or about horse riding or about football, even being a football supporter, if you're genuinely sufficiently fanatical about your support for Liverpool Football Club, for example, that can be really, really colorful. And you can, there's all sorts of leadership potential that can be told through that channel. But the color uh, has to be there. How can someone get color? And that may sound like a really odd or obvious question, but particularly if someone has been just focusing on grades or equally, and, and I'll let you tell me if I've got the right end of the stick here, you know, implicit in what you're saying is, is color equals passion, not simply just extracurricular. So learning the violin to grade eight because it'll look good on your UCAS is, is not the same from what I'm, I'm understanding. So how can someone listening, you know, who may be at university or maybe sort of like you were 21, 22 to 25 looking to get into the industry, how can they be getting that color if it's something they've not thought about? Yeah, I mean, I think reading, I think one acid test question is how much reading do you do? By the way, I actually include serious consumption of YouTube as part of the extended sort of modern definition of, of, of reading. And to what extent is one of the topics that you're interested in, are you really getting properly underneath the skin of it and exploring it? And if you say, you know what, no, I kind of skim a few books here and there. You know, you know when I look at YouTube, I'm just sort of skimming around and stuff. That means you're probably not really going deep on anything that's passionate to you. Uh, and so maybe it's time to have a rethink. What are some of my pet topics? And I just really get underneath the skin of it so I can really properly talk about it. And you'd be surprised. Uh, you can become, with the wealth of information that's available today, you can become a, an expert on any topic today. The information's available. You just have to go after it. I think you're completely right. I, I also, I'm smiling at the inclusion of YouTube because I, I've seen it used for both. And I'm intrigued, particularly for anyone listening to this who may be actually 
you know, a leader of a consulting firm looking to hire, and, and let's say they don't have a, a sort of recruitment machine like a McKinsey would have, actually, how do you balance the benefit and particularly maybe take what you, you do now with potential life? You know, the, the potential of a candidate who has color versus one who has grades. I ask that deliberately as an either or. So are we, and you'll probably say it somewhere in the middle, but are you better taking a candidate who actually maybe on the face of it doesn't have as good grades, but has a lot of color versus a candidate who's, you know, straight A's, et cetera, but has very little color? <laughs> so I don't, I don't think about it in those terms. So I don't think that grades is differentiating. In other words, I think there are plenty of high grade people out there. It's totally non-differentiating. Now, of course, if you don't happen to have the grades, then you won't be saying that as you listen to that, this podcast right now. But we, and we can come back to perhaps your question in a second. My point is the differentiator is the color. So grades are the housekeeping. You let them through the filter if they've got the grades. If you don't have the grades, they don't get through. And then you have the color conversation. So that's how I frame it. But you actually asked a different question. You're asking me to trade off b- b- between the two. And I would definitely go for somebody with color. You know, I think grades are overrated. I got a 2-1 in maths from a sort of second level university in the UK. It's, it's thoroughly average, my, my first degree. Does that mean I, I didn't deserve a, my chance? Of course it doesn't. No, I, was, I suppose I was lucky that I, I tilted the odds in my favor and, and ended up having lots of opportunities. But, you know, it would have been silly to say, well, no, he didn't actually have a first in maths from Oxford. So we're not going to give that person that chance. So I, I'm a big believer in that. And I know certain educational systems, for example, in France, they're massively overweight on grades as the, as the sort of filtering thing. I think you're basically creating a huge number. Is it type two errors? I forget what they are, but you know, errors of exclusion. I think that's, that's just massive loss of opportunity. Really good point. And actually, you mentioned there around sort of you tilted the odds in your favor. And, and maybe, I know this probably feels like the thing we may, maybe should have started the show with, but actually as a sort of last piece on this, it'd be great if you could bring this to life with your journey because yeah, I'll let you explain the story, but something that stuck with me when we spoke was you said, Nick, actually I never would have, yeah, I never would have got into McKinsey in London, but I got in, in in Paris and now I'll let you explain the story. It wasn't simply you applied to all the offices outside of England to see if you could get in. So I'd love if you could just bring that sort of colour point to life with your own story and yeah, how you tilted the odds in your favour to you know, get in the door in the first place. Yes. First of all, if I'd been your, your bog standard Brit applying to McKinsey in London, yes, no chance. And not just McKinsey, by the way. I think most consulting firms, you know, with the kind of grades I had and from the university I came from, you know, it's not going it's not, it's just not going to happen. But then I found myself in France. And it's quite unusual, actually, for British people to be fully immersed in French, French culture. So I went the whole hog and went for deep immersion in, in the French way of doing things. So, so I wasn't just a sort of a Brit who just kind of, kind of can muddle their way through roughly in French. You know, I, I'm, I went all in. And so I, I was this sort of person with sort of two identities, depending on who's actually speaking to me. You know, French people said, he's, uh, he's kind of pretty close to being French. And then I speak to some Brits. No, he's a Brit. And so there was something a little bit intriguing there. And so when I applied to McKinsey in Paris, I was this sort of slightly intriguing person that can, you know, sort of works both ways. And that's actually in the world of business in that time in the early 90s. That was really interesting because business hadn't internationalized as much at that point, but it was heading that way. 
And so the thought of having somebody you just send on a project to the US and then come back and speak in the local language to the French client, that was like, wow, this, this looks interesting. So I had my little angle that, that was interesting. Now, I, I didn't consciously think this through and play this as my sort of, this is my clever strategy for getting in. It's just what I had become that was, I suppose, perceived as being colorful and a bit different and worthy of taking a punt on. So that was kind of the story that, that got me in. And, you know, a large part of my early McKinsey career was my edge was the sort of the, you know, the French refer to non-French people from the, the English-speaking world as Anglo-Saxons. So I, I was this French-speaking Anglo-Saxon who added some cultural spice to what would otherwise be rather French sort of ways of, of looking at problems. And, and so that was, a, that was an angle that had, that had value. In a funny way, I think it actually brings together everything we've talked about that you have learned over your last 20 years into that story from when you were sort of 24, 25 of actually that you mentioned that going all in, becoming French, fully embracing it, really committing to that. And yeah, I'm inferring that was your passion at the time. And, and obviously that helped in, in getting you in in that color. I think you also, you know, that point around actually being ahead of a curve. So the curve in your case was the internet, you know, the globalization of business. And while business today is global, there will be other curves that people can get in front of. But now I think a really good, uh, probably a really good story to to actually bring us towards the end, Angus, because I've just got two more questions for you. And I'll be intrigued on the first one and I'll broaden it given what you said about YouTube. So the, the first of the last two is about books. And as an avid reader, I love to get my guest recommendations. And actually, as I say, given you've teed me up by saying you view YouTube in the same way as books, I will I will broaden this and say, what is the the book or the YouTube channel or video that you find yourself gifting or recommending most? And, and why is that? Yeah, so I've got so many books. So I'll try and limit it to one or two. Otherwise, we're going <laughs> to. So obviously, the joy of leadership is a natural, but uh, that wasn't, I don't, I don't think, the spirit of your question. I think it's a good time to properly understand what Yuval Noah Harari has to say. So he's written three books now, Sapiens, Homo Deus, and 21 Lessons, I think, of the 21st century. I believe everybody should read all three of those books twice so that you are able to engage in a conversation on there's so much substance in those about where homo sapiens has come from why we're different from animals and where we're likely to be headed or potentially could be headed it's just so much the trilogy of our times you have to read them twice because at least for my brain it doesn't stick if you don't so i definitely recommend that and most people have read some of his books what i'm really saying is go all in and get stuck in because it's really, really interesting and I think relevant. There's other books I really like the look of and I've just, I, I kind of picked them up, not, not that me showing them on the screen is going to be any use for the podcast, but I'm really interested in and worried about where global capitalism is going and, and the, the fact that nation states have lost their ability to regulate companies because these global companies have now essentially become unregulatable. And with that, uh, financial flows have become untaxable. And it's a huge problem. And it's not just wealthy Western people using tax havens. It's also a huge amount of development aid that goes into Africa, basically ends its way directly in the Cayman Islands because it's basically being laundered. And so there's a great book called Moneyland by Olivia Bullock, which basically describes all of the, the how the global sort of tax evasion system works 
and what's basically happening to all of the money of the world and just how much money is being siphoned away. I just find that just fascinating. And anybody who's interested in the future of our global economy, the world that you're going to be growing up into, is worth getting stuck into. These are just some of the subjects I'm, I'm passionate about. I could go on because I've got a whole long list here, but I'll probably just stop there. I think some great recommendations, Angus. And yeah, I mean, also, if you have got a list, do send them. I'll put them in the show notes as your, your extended reading list. But I think, yeah, the, I, I'm about halfway through Sapiens. It's embarrassing to admit, but it's, it's been halfway through for a little while. I think it's a hugely powerful book. I think, like you said, it's, it isn't the easiest read. Not it's, sort of, it's not a Harry Potter, but it is you know, very powerful. And I ha- obviously haven't yet got to the next two, but given the recommendation, I may well go pick it up again um, this weekend. But no, some really good good recommendations. And yes, if there's any others you have, I will obviously put your book in the show notes as well. But any others that you sort of think, yeah, must read. And, and genuinely, because you, you mentioned it, if there's any, I'm not going to ask you to explain them now, but if there's any YouTube channels that you think talk about these topics in a sort of really powerful way that others should go and watch, do let me know. Because yes, I increasingly, particularly as I get older, I see more younger folk watching YouTube um, or the YouTubers I tell my nephew. So yeah, please do give me those. And then then the last question is really, well, it could be a wrap up, it could be something we've not touched on, but it is broadly along the theme of the interview, which is you've got three people in front of you. One is, let's say, that graduate, I won't say you at 25, I'll say that graduate has just entered McKinsey. You've got someone who's sort of middle grade. So call that four, five, six years in, you know, they, they're far enough in that they've got choices. They're not far enough in yet that they're at the top of the, you know, the tree. And then the final person is somebody approaching partner. And the question's quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? (laughs) Yeah. So the person who's starting their career in consulting, I would say, statistically, you're not actually starting your career in consulting because the vast majority of people that start in consulting don't have a career in consulting. So really what you're doing is you're starting your career. And so don't view this as a yet as your career in consulting. View it as the start of your professional life. And I would go back to this idea of passion and purpose and this idea of going all in. Whatever you do, just as I reflect on this conversation and in a way you've, you've helped me understand a little bit more about myself, actually. And I, and I think this idea of going all in is really, really important. And it's difficult because there are so many possibilities. So it's very easy to stand on the edge of the dance floor, never actually getting into the mix. The message is go all in one way or another. So then you have the person who's the sort of, the, uh, you know, a few years in person. I would go back to the marginal value question you know, of the extra day. I think that's that. That's how that you need to be thinking about this, start thinking about this at that point. And then as far as the partner, uh, I would say is, you may think you've arrived, you haven't. So you better get used to that pretty fast. This is just the beginning. And so get used to it. Uh, and don't somehow think that you've achieved comfort. On the contrary, there is no comfort in consulting. And basically, we shouldn't be solving for comfort in any aspect of our professional lives. We should be living this in an adventure where the lack of comfort is more than offset by all of the joys of the ride. That's the how we should be we, we playing for this. 
I guess I think a great place for us to finish. So thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation and it's been great finding about you and particularly what you're doing now at Potential Life and how you're helping your clients and the model you're using. And yeah, there's, like you say, I've helped you. I think there's a lot of things coming out of this that I'm going to be thinking about over the, the bank holiday weekend we're just coming up to. And I think the very last thing to ask is for anyone who has listened to this, has enjoyed it, would like to find out more about yourself, like to find out more about Potential Life, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, so LinkedIn, that's obvious. And there's only one, there aren't many Angus Ridgeways. It's, it's, you know, it's not an un, massively unusual name, but it's unusual enough for there only to really be, I think, one of me on LinkedIn. So that's easy to find. And then Potential Life with a single L, so Potential Life. You can learn all about us there and you can get in touch with us there. And if anybody has questions and just interested in following up or exploring themes, I love connecting with, engaging with, and talking with young people. So it's always a pleasure for me. So don't be shy about getting in touch. Fantastic, Angus. Well, we'll put all of those links. I'll put your LinkedIn profile and the Potential Life website in the show notes so people can find them. And as I say, really enjoyed this. Thank you for coming on the show and all the best for the rest of your week. My pleasure. Cheers, everybody. Thanks a lot, Angus. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.